everybody. Welcome to Strong Mind, Strong Body. So what if I told you that the worst thing that could happen to you could prove to be the best thing that could happen to you? That's the story of my guest today. His name is Chad Foster, and he is the author of Blind Ambition. He's also an international keynote speaker, a Harvard graduate, and again, the author of Blind Ambition. It is a huge honor to have Chad with me today. I'm Angie Miller, and again, this is Strong Mind, Strong Body. It's such an honor to have Chad on the show because he's busy making a difference throughout the globe, talking to people about his story. And I'm going to let Chad share that story with you, but it's a massive story of resilience, and it's one that I think all of us can learn from. So Chad, I'm going to bring you into the show and have you introduce yourself. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my name is Chad, and obviously I've been through a bit of a of an unusual situation based on the life circumstances that I was presented, and just really happy to be here. I'm happy to be here with you, and hopefully share some thoughts and some sentiments with your audience that can that can help them think differently about some of the obstacles that we all face. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're you always say you become your story, and so it's important that the stories we tell ourselves are the stories because those are kind of the the land, you know, the the groundwork for how we live our life. So, yep. Chad, why don't you kind of give us? Um, I understand that at the age of 21, you were well before the age of 21, you were able to see and experience life um, the way that you were accustomed. And at the age of 21, everything changed. And that turned out to be the story that you talk about that, you know, you we become our stories, but what is it that we're going to do with what's presented to us? And how are we going to make the most of that in our lives? So do you want to share with everyone on Strong Mind, Strong Body a little bit about your story? Sure. Yeah, so I, growing up, as you pointed out, I, I could see I played sports, I played football, I played basketball, I wrestled, I played soccer, was able to drive a car as I got older. But I was diagnosed at three years old. They diagnosed me at Duke University Medical Center because I had problems seeing in really poorly lit areas, i.e. at night. And so they told my family that I had retinitis pigmentosa and that at some point I could go blind. And so they always had that sort of looming. I didn't know that, of course. I just knew that as I got older and my eyesight began to show more and more symptoms, I learned that my eyesight wasn't as good as other people's eyesight by running into things. And so it was, it was pretty uncomfortable, you know, all the trips to the hospital that I had. I was there so much, they even questioned me and my parents in separate rooms whether or not they were beating me. But the truth is, they weren't beating me. They were just letting me live as full of life as I could while I could. You know, the doctors told them that they should put me in a special school for the blind, but instead my parents signed me up for soccer. So that kind of gives you an idea of the mentality that they had going into it. They didn't want to coddle me and protect me from the inevitability of the fact that I was going to have to adapt and adjust to my life and my reality and the world that we know it as today. So they didn't, they didn't make it too soft and, and cuddly for me. And um, yeah, in, in college, I was about three years deep into my medical major and then went totally blind at that point, lost all of my eyesight, couldn't complete my anatomy and my physiology classes because 
you know, you had to identify parts of the human body on the cadaver. And I just like, there were certain things I refused to, to feel. <laughs> it's like, I don't really want to, to go into the medical field that badly where I want to feel a dead body to identify those parts. But it was, uh, I'm, I'm laughing and joking about it now, but obviously it was a very traumatic period for me at the time because I had to flush essentially three hours of university work down the drain. I had to flush my hopes and dreams of, for my future self, what I wanted to be when I grow up and um, and really mourn the death of that imagined future self there in college at 21 years old when most people were preparing for the adventure of their life to start. I kind of noticed mine ending, if you will. And this this um, was kind of a new beginning. I certainly didn't think of it as a new be new beginning at the time. It was more like, you know, the, the finality yeah, of life yeah. as I had known it. So all the things that I could enjoy, like the beautiful sunsets or the, the sports that I'd played or, you know, being able to see my future wife or seeing my future kids, all of that came to a grinding halt when the reality of the darkness wrapped itself around me. So it was a pretty challenging time. Well, and you know, I really appreciate you sharing that story with us on what I find really um, kind of that really stood out to me is how your parents managed it and how when yeah. you got that diagnosis, they didn't want to call you. They didn't want you to feel like you needed to live your life differently. They let you live your life. They let you take the falls yeah. and they set you up to me. In my opinion, they set you up for success yeah. to say that these are the things that happen to us, but they don't have to define us. What's going right. to define us is how we move through these things. So here you are growing up, doing sports, doing all the things that you wouldn't think other people's parents would have them do. And look what it did for you. It To me, it made you strong and resilient. But still, yep. no matter your strength or resilience, when you're 21 and you're in college, and you and I talked about this when we spoke on the phone, is that whole grief aspect that you yeah. have to grieve when yeah. you have a life story that you think is going to happen and then something gets in the way of that and you have to grieve before you can move forward, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, because it really is, there is uh, trauma through the loss. And, um, you know, whether it's a loved one, um, in this case, it, it was it was a very personal loved one to me. It was it was me who who I had known myself to be and who I wanted to be. When, when I grew up, all of that died. You know, we ask kids all the time, what do you what, what do you want to be when you grow up? Guess what? None of them said they want to grow up and be a blind person. So I had to figure out what I was going to do. And, I, you know, for a while, honestly, Angie, I sat around. I felt sorry for myself. I had the poor me mentality. None of my friends have to go through this. This isn't fair. And then I, I sort of decided and realized that um, that mentality wasn't going to serve me in the long run. I was 21 years old. If I'm so lucky to live another, you know, until I'm 70, 80 years old in my golden years, if I'm going to sit around feeling sorry for myself for the rest of my life, 50 years is way too much sorry for me to live with. And so I decided to take at that moment a different approach. And, and I was really shifted in a direction when I went to Leader Dogs for the Blind to get my first guide dog. When I, I showed up on campus there at Leader Dogs for the Blind, this was when I was 23, and I was there to get my, my dog, and I was really, you know, down and out, the poor me, the whole pity mentality. I still had 
some residue of that. And so I get there and there are people there, you know, some of them had different impairments than I did. Some of them had mental and eyesight impairments. Some of them were on dialysis because they had diabetes that had caused their blindness. And then there were these girls there who were deaf and blind. And it was pretty unimaginable for me. And it's, it's one thing when you just, you meet someone on the street and you hear how rough they have it. But I lived with these people for 26 days and saw their challenges firsthand. And it really etched into my memory the things that we all take for granted, the things that I had taken for granted, the fact that I'd had 21 years of good sight, the fact that I had all of my hearing, all my cognitive faculties, you know, I was just, um, it, it changed the way that I looked at my life forever. It, it left an indelible mark on me because I realized at that moment that happiness is not some feeling or some emotion that comes over you. It's actually a perspective. You know, it's a decision. It's how you choose to anchor yourself. It's either focused on things that you lack or hope you get someday, which are precariously outside of your control, or it can come from the things that you're appreciative for that are in your life. And, you know, it's more internally focused in that way. And so I learned at a young age, 23 years old, for me, the key to happiness was not letting it be affected by things that were going on around me, but instead coming from deep inside me. And that that was a profound moment for me. And I, I apply the same things, you know, to success. I think a lot of people look at success and they think success is some event that happens to them. Oh, when this happens, I will be successful. Or when that happens, I will be successful. I, I push back on that. I don't think that should be the way that we look at success. Success to me is a mind state. It's how do we look at the day-to-day -day activities of our life? And it's, it's just the way that we show up. It's not some event because some event implies that it may or may not happen. It may or may not disappear. So I don't really see happiness or success as one-time events tied to things outside of our control. I see them more as journeys that we have control over. Yeah. Well, and to your point, success is fluid, but you know, two things come to my mind and the whole perspective key is huge because I can imagine when you're 23 and you're going away and you're in this place where you're working with a dog, you know, your dog and you're meeting people all around you who've had different experiences and circumstances. And it really did give you perspective. It widened your lens. And I always think about perspective, like looking through a camera Yep. And you expand the lens and you widen it so that you have a greater field of vision. And I feel like that's what perspective does. It gives us a greater field of vision. And to your point, then it makes you realize that success isn't just one big thing, because all of us know that when you achieve that one big thing, your mind automatically goes, OK, what's next? And so mm -hmm. the joy and the happiness comes from the process of working toward things and appreciating the day-to-day -day moments that bring us joy. But Chad, before I turn this back to you, I want to reintroduce mm -hmm. you. My name is Angie and this is Strong Mind, Strong Body. And I'm talking to Chad Foster. He's an international keynote speaker. He's also a Harvard graduate and the author of Blind Ambition. And at the age of 21, Chad's life changed dramatically when he turned legally blind. And Chad, you're talking about perspective, but one of the things that you talk about that I found the most 
um, kind of enlightening or helpful was you said victims stay trapped and visionaries bounce back. And I feel like that's kind of what you're saying is for a while you went into that victim state yep. and you gain perspective and you realize, you know what, do I want to be a victim or do I want to be a visionary? So how did you, you know, you go away, you start to see these people. What was the real turning point for you where you thought, okay, I got to bounce back. I think it was at Leader Dogs when I had, that was the big inflection point for me when I decided to re-examine my own life and basket of circumstances and focus on the things that I could control. You know, when I, when I left there with this new feeling, this new approach, and I came back to university, and yes, I came back to university and I switched my major from medical to business. I had to relearn how to learn because I was a very visual learner. And so I didn't really know how I was going to learn. So I had to relearn how to learn. And um, the obstacles were pretty significant. I didn't know how to use a computer at the time. I had just learned, actually, while I was at LeaderDog, about the technology that blind people can use, screen reading technology, that allows them to use a computer. So I just learned about that. And I'm coming back to, to school at the University of Tennessee, where I did my undergrad. And I ended up, yeah, I ended up getting all of my books on tape. My mom actually read every single one of my business books to cassette for me. And that was a really powerful moment for me because it inspired me to lean into the discomfort of relearning how to learn. And a funny thing happened, Angie. I actually turned out to be a better blind student than sighted student. You know, I made straight A's from that point forward. I made the dean's list and ended up getting a job offer from two really great companies. One of them I accepted and I, I moved to Atlanta and took on a role with this really uh, large top consulting firm. And so I got into tech at that point where, uh, where I was kind of thrust into, okay, how do we write enterprise applications for our customers, be them, you know, either CRM applications or ERP applications, either customer relationship or enterprise resource planning applications. And I just learned how to use a computer a year prior. So it was and not to mention when I was moving to Atlanta, you know, I was, I started to get nervous because I'd always lived in Knoxville and uh, here I am, I'm moving to Atlanta. I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. I don't like, there's no network of support there. I can't see at all. I just started using a guide dog a year or so before, and I don't know how I'm going to get around something as simple as, you know, laundering my clothes, taking my, my clothes to the dry cleaners or getting groceries. Or, you know, we didn't have grocery delivery back then. We didn't have Uber back then. So it was all, I had to learn the bus and the train system without being able to see. I had to figure things out. And honestly, it was, it was pretty scary. And I almost, you know, I thought about backing out because I was so intimidated by it. But the thing that I, that, that got me through it, that I kept thinking about is something that I like to do even to this day I call it the future you exercise. So what decision can future you live with? In this case, I was scared of failing, scared of not being able to get around, scared of not being able to do the job, scared of traveling. I had to travel every week to new airports and new client sites and hotels. And so there was a lot that I had never even tried on the line. But the thing I was more scared of, sort of the counter fear, if you will, that I had was not knowing if I could have been successful or not, not knowing what's possible if I didn't even try. And so 
the decision that future Chad could live with was failing. The, the decision that future Chad could not live with is not knowing. So I decided to lean into the fear and the discomfort. And I moved to Atlanta and things went on from there. You know, it's interesting because when I was, when I graduated from college, no one in my, I have four older sisters and no one had ever moved away, but I was also the first person in my family to go to college. So I get this job in Kansas city and again, no one had ever left. My mom, my four sisters were still where I grew up and I took the job, right? I got the job. And so I took the job and I moved and it was really, really scary. But I can't imagine how much more scary it would have been if my whole life had completely changed and I was no longer a seeing person and I had all those other things in front of me that I had to navigate. And here you were traveling. But, you know, it's interesting because that was my fear, too. It wasn't that I might fail. It was what would happen if I didn't even try. And the fact that then I would just have to go back home, if you will, and um, land in a safe space and landing mm -hmm. in a safe space isn't always a place of growth and opportunity. So I have you know, huge amounts of admiration and my own smaller level of understanding of what that's like to just take a chance on you. But I like that future mm -hmm. you and focusing on what's possible instead of what could go wrong. Because that's mm -hmm. kind of what I hear you say throughout this whole thing is it's, it's focus on what you can control. So you can control the fact that you got this opportunity and you can make the most of it and see if you can make it work. Um, yep. you, you know, Chad, you talk about, you have a resilience model and I know mm -hmm. that that's what you use in your keynotes. Could you walk us through kind of step-by-step -step what your resilience model is? Because I feel like everybody talks about resilience, but not everybody has a true story or a true testament to what mm -hmm. it's like to truly live an experience of resilience. Yeah, I, I do. And I I feel like there's a lot of people, who, it's sort of an overused term nowadays even, but I don't feel like a lot of people break down what it is and what it isn't. So yeah, I've put some thought into what I like to think of as the anatomy of resilience. And it's obviously not something that I read in a book somewhere. This is something that came out of my own lived experience. So I've tried it. I've tested it and I, I know that it I know that it works because it's worked in my life. But the first step, I think, for anybody to be resilient is to realize that they have a choice. So pillar number one of my resilience model is choose your response. You don't get to choose everything that happens to you, but you get to choose how you respond. You get to choose how you show up. And so this forces a degree of accountability. You know, you are not responsible for all of the circumstances in your life, but you ultimately have to be accountable for your life, your decisions, and the way that your life goes. Because if you are not accountable for your life, then who is? Mm -hmm. And so it's very important that we realize that we have to take ownership of our lives and of our decisions. Pillar well, number two... I was going to say nothing's more discouraging too than meeting somebody who's stuck in a blame mindset or a yeah. victim mindset, because it's discouraging to watch people not want to take the wheel and drive their own car, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. your life. Yes, you couldn't help what happened to you, but you do get to choose how you're going to respond. And ultimately, it really doesn't matter whose fault it is or if it was someone's fault. It just matters that you're going to live your best life because it's the only life you have to live. That's so. Right. That's, yeah, 
That's right. I mean, at the end of our lives, when we look back on it, even if we have, even if we're living in a victim mindset our whole life, and we look back on it, and we don't get what we want out of our lives, who cares whether or not it was our fault or not? The fact of the matter is, we didn't get what we wanted out of our lives. So I just fundamentally disagree with the victim mindset or the blame game. It doesn't really matter why things didn't go a certain way. The, the, the fact of the matter is you want to get what you want out of your life. And the best way I know to do that is to hold yourself accountable. Instead of spending all of your time and energy looking for legitimate reasons to fail, spend that time and spend that energy trying to, to break through your barriers, whatever they may be. Yeah, I love that. Hold yourself accountable. That is 100%. So what's your second part of resilience? Tell yourself the right stories because you will become the stories that you tell yourself. Now, essentially, I could have told myself one of two stories when I went blind. Story number one is that I went blind because I've got really bad luck. And story number two is that I went blind because I'm one of the few people on this planet who has the strength and the toughness to overcome it and use it to help other people. Now, technically, both of these stories are true. But the first story frames me up to be a victim, the poor me story. But the second story, the better story, is actually, it's like a Jedi mind trick because it takes my perceived disadvantage, my blindness, and, and couches it in a way that says, hey, this happened to you, Chad, because you're mentally strong enough to deal with it, overcome it, and use it to help other people. So it actually reframes my blindness mm -hmm. and puts the focus on my inner strength. Yeah. So it, it transforms a disadvantage into an advantage. And either way you choose, whichever story you choose, the good or the bad story, it really does become a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you're constantly telling yourself the poor me story, inevitably that's who you are. That's who you will be. But if you're telling yourself a better story, that's who you can be. And so that's who you can evolve into. So I feel like it's, it's very profound in my, my point of view from, from my point of view, it leads to, and what I think is one of the, the essential aspects of resilient thinking. Yeah. Well, and also at the end of the day, it, it kind of ties into what kind of mark do you want to leave in this world? Because if you get stuck in the whole victim mentality and the whole, you know, my story is that this happened to me, um, then, you know, what is that book? The, the leadership book, 15 qualities of leadership. I can't remember what the name of it. And it's the difference between this happened to me. And then, you know, what can I do with what happens in yeah. my world? And so um, it's reframing it to your point and you are using it to make a powerful difference in other people's lives instead of staying stuck in that place where you're focused on what's not working. So what's your other kind of part of resilience? So I've got a total of five pillars. Pillar number three is visualize your greatness. So essentially you have to figure out how to make sometimes unfavorable circumstances work for you instead of against you. you know, fundamentally, I had to figure out how to make blind look good. And if I could not figure out how to make blind look good to me, then how could I ever move towards acceptance? I, I couldn't. And certainly thriving couldn't be possible. And so I had to reimagine kind of that future Chad, what, 
you know, reimagine how that could work for me. And I started off by visualizing greatness as being a successful business person to be a role model for other people who, uh, who were facing comparable challenges. And then that's sort of evolved to now to where I can help other people with, with what I've learned, the, the lessons of resilience, the, the lessons of success and happiness and how to think more productively and, and adjust sort of the way that we look at things so that we can stay up, stay more optimistic and stay more upbeat and, and provide the fuel for the energy and effort and determination that we need. So very important, I think, to visualize how you can make things work for you instead of against you, instead of always just taking the easy path, which is only focusing on the negative. Well, and you know, one of the things, the word that you said that struck me the most is acceptance. Because if you really break it down, those who stay in victim mentalities and those who don't want to reframe their story don't really have a lot of personal acceptance. They don't have any, they don't have acceptance of what happened to them in this world. They don't have acceptance of themselves. They don't have acceptance of the people around them. And acceptance Mm -hmm. is a huge part of making peace. Go back to the grief piece. When you had to grieve what happened to you, I talk so much to my clients about grieving and how it's okay to say, yes, I need to move forward. But first you have to give yourself permission to grieve. And part of that is just accepting what did happen so that you can work through that process of grief so that you can move forward. And so I really like that you mentioned acceptance because in order to visualize your greatness, you have to accept who you are and where you are. And now what can you do with that? Yeah, they're definitely closely related. And I think the more bold and daring you can be in visualizing greatness in your unpalatable circumstances, the easier it is to move towards acceptance. So I think they they work hand in glove. Um, But I think this is the point, you know, when, when you're looking at your situation where you really want to be bold and come up with a kind of really bold, inspiring vision of the future you that can motivate you to do some of the hard work that you need in order to get there. Well, so Chad, before you go any further, I want to reintroduce you. I'm talking to Chad Foster. He's an international keynote speaker. He is a testament to resilience. He's a Harvard graduate. And at the age of 21, he went blind and he wrote the book Blind Ambition. And Chad, your stories of resilience, I think, are are so powerful. And I love the acceptance piece. I love the idea that we need to kind of rewrite our story and not think about being a victim, but think about how we respond to life. One thing before you go on, I have to ask you something. Sure. You mentioned that word bold. And I always think about that. Like, how do I live boldly? How do I make the most powerful difference? How do I step, you know, I feel like I'm a courageous person, a strong person. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to be uncomfortable, but what is the key to boldness? What is the key to saying, you know what, it's okay to be completely vulnerable and it's okay to just put myself out there and it may or may not work. What, what's your key to boldness? I think it, it probably has to do with, and this, this actually does segue into my next pillar pretty nicely. Um, it, it starts with a, a belief, a confidence in oneself that success or failure on one given thing will not define you. You will not be defined by whether or not you succeed on this one thing. And I think a lot of that has been buoyed in my case by my willingness to exercise my fourth pillar, 
for resilience, and that is get comfortable with discomfort. I feel like I've done that so much in my life. I've been out of my comfort zone so much that I'm willing to experiment. I'm willing to try new things. I'm willing to see whether or not I can be successful at different things. And even the small things, and I would say, you know, in contrast to visualize your greatness, which I think needs to be bold, I think getting comfortable with discomfort has to start really small. Because when you get slightly outside of your comfort zone, the consequences aren't too great. And then you start learning that you can do things that you had doubts about. You know, you can you can do some of the things. So I also, from a from a physical standpoint, uh, today, you know, I train in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I'm also a, a black diamond snow skier, neither of which I had tried before I went blind. I, I started skiing at 38 years old and I started practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu at nearly 46 years old. Oh, my gosh. I saw videos of you skiing. And uh, yeah. and being that I'm an extremely novice skier and I ski like, you know, I look at when I go skiing in Colorado and I look at these kids just like whamming past me 100 <laughs> miles an hour. And I'm like, yeah. wow, that's true courage. Um, yeah. I saw videos of you skiing and I I was just I was struck by just complete shock and just admiration. So I didn't realize that you took up skiing so late. You know what that comes to my mind? It isn't just confidence and boldness. What comes to my mind is fear. And I feel like, you know, if there's one thing that I can, I can, I listen to you and I go, okay, that's, that's one thing that I am all in on is, is facing fear. In fact, if yeah. I'm really scared of something that makes me want to do it, I, I yeah. don't fear getting in my way. And it yeah. sounds like you are double down on that, right? I have. In fact, I did my first combat sports tournament last May and I was, I was very uneasy. I was going up against guys. Yeah, I had a year and a half of training experience. There were some guys in my division who had six years of experience, far more experience than me. They obviously could all see. Uh, I don't know if that's obvious or not, but they could. I'm, I'm the, I was the only one who couldn't see. And in a combat sports tournament, you have to go in knowing that people want to take your arm home with them. They are there to rip your arm off. It is, that's just kind of how it works. It's, it's very competitive. And so I was like you, I thought initially I was like, I don't know if I really want to do this. It sounds a little intimidating. And then the other part of me was like, actually, I do want to do it. And that's exactly why I need to do it because yeah. I'm not competing against the competitors at this tournament. I'm competing against myself. Yeah. Isn't that I'm fighting the one enemy who constantly prevents me from re reaching my full potential. And that's me. Mm -hmm. And so I need to face those fears and when you do, you face those fears, they lose all the power and control. And on the other side of every fear is growth and opportunity. And yeah. so I feel very strongly about that. That's what, and obviously I didn't start off uh, in jujitsu going to compete. I didn't start off in skiing on a double black diamond. I started off small, learning the basics, putting in the work and really getting comfortable with the discomfort but I think, like I said, in contrast to visualizing greatness, that has to be bold. Starting off, getting comfortable with discomfort, start small because you start to learn that you can do things and that the fears that we all have are unwarranted a lot of times. Yeah. Well, and you know what I think about fear? I tell my clients this a lot. A lot of my clients say, well, you know, I like to have control. 
And if I get out of my comfort zone, then I feel like I'm out of control. But my my thought to that is, to me, and, and you kind of said it in, in a better way than me, is where you really have control is when you face your fear. Because then you are taking away fear's power and you are empowering yourself. And so to me, that's where you have control. And even if it doesn't go the way you want it to go, you put yourself out there and that that's a sense of, of control. You know, it's controlling what you can control, making a decision to say fear's not going to get in my way. So, um, yeah, you are you are full of courage and all that. Yeah, so what's, just, what's your uh, to, key to resilience? I'm sorry, my what? Fifteen. Resilience. Uh, the fifth pillar is take advantage of your disadvantages, and so the idea there is that every perceived disadvantage in life offers us some advantage if we use it in the right context. And so, how can you take things that you you look at as a disadvantage in your life and put yourself in a position? to capitalize on them. Things that you can't control, things that are outside of your control, if you can't change them, I think you change how you attach yourself to them and figure out how they can work for you instead of against you. Mm, I like that change how you attach yourself to them because, you know, are we wearing it around us like a warm blanket, like it's an excuse? Or are we shedding that blanket and saying, uh, yes, this is part of my story, but it's not my whole story. And really my story is going to be what I make out of it. So how you attach yourself to it is huge. You know, Chad, you, you and I, when we talked on the phone, I hung up, first of all, we had never spoken on the phone. And then mm -hmm. five minutes in, I'm telling you a story that only a few of my very close friends know. So, um, you know, so then I had to, you know, hold your ransom and say, don't ever share that. No. And then an hour and a half later, we got off the call. We're supposed to go for, I think, 30 minutes and we went yeah. for an hour and a half, right? Then it just a lot got unpacked and uncovered. And I, I really, I felt in you um, that sense of boldness and not fearlessness, because I don't believe in fearlessness. I don't think there's mm -hmm. fearlessness. I think there's fear. And then there's facing our fear and, mm -hmm. and looking at it and being able to say, Hey, you know what? You're not going to win either way because I'm going to stand up to you and do my best. But mm -hmm. your story is a, an amazing story of resilience. And I hope that people buy your book. And I know that you and I talked about, you know, ways of staying connected. And, and I personally feel connected to you. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on Strong Mind, Strong Body and sharing with listeners, because I know for a fact that there's one thing, too, that you didn't really mention. You mentioned your sportsmanship, but you are an active exerciser on a daily basis, right? Oh, yeah. I've been lifting weights and exercising, lifting weights since I was 14. I've been playing soccer. I started playing soccer at three or four. And I, you know, was, I've been a gym rat since I went blind. I've always been a gym rat, really. Love going to the gym. I've got a gym in my basement that I get up and go work out at five o'clock in the morning every day. But now the cardio, I have a bunch of cardio machines down there. I've got a rowing machine, an art trainer, a Versa climber, a few other things. I don't really use those anymore. I get my cardio from jujitsu. So I do jujitsu five to six days a week. It's all the cardio you, you need really when you're training for an hour and a half, two hours every day. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I love it because I feel like the stress that I put on my body 
prepares my mind to take on more stress too. So I honestly don't think I would have come out of going blind the way that I did had I not played sports. I feel like the, the grind of sports training, showing up every day, putting yourself through the rigors, being disciplined, holding yourself accountable, making sure that you do the hard work, you know, kind of going through the pain, right? Enduring the pain of training physically kind of prepares you for some of the emotional things that life throws at you. And I, I've seen that, you know, as I was going blind and today, you know, a lot of that, there's, there's a bleed over effect from my jujitsu training, whether it's, it's dealing with you know, showing up every day or the, the training, whether it's, it's the, uh, the rigors of it, or even things like facing your fears. You know, we, we talked a lot here about fears. First time a, a black belt's putting you in a chokehold and you know, you've got no way out. It's pretty terrifying. But the more you train in jujitsu, it actually teaches you to settle into the terror. So instead of panicking and having your adrenaline spike, your heart rate get out of control, you learn to calm yourself, loosen up, relax, and just settle into the terror, which is it's a really transferable thing, whether you're training in the gym or maybe you've got a personal matter that's really stressful or maybe a work-related thing that's causing you some anxiety. What if we could all get really, really good at getting calm and relaxed and confident whenever we're facing those fears. Yeah, settle into the terror. That's one that's going to stay with me. So Chad Foster, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to have you share in a minute how people can reach you. But if there's one takeaway that I got out of this, aside from your, um, your anatomy of resilience, it is just hold yourself accountable. If all of us in this world would show up and hold ourselves accountable, and that was our mission is not to hold others accountable, but to hold ourselves accountable. Yep. Imagine what we could create. And so wow. that in the whole idea of facing fear, not being fearless, but making fear something that we're not going to run away from. So, Chad, thank you so much. Thanks to all of our Strong Minds, Strong Body listeners. Can you tell um, our listeners I know I saw it in your backdrop, but is there a different way you want to share? I see chadfoster.com, blindambitionbook.com. Is there any other way that people can reach you or anything else that you want to put out there? I think chadefoster.com, that's my website, is probably the, the easiest way. And from there, they can find all my social media handles. I'm on Twitter at Chad E. Foster. Facebook and Instagram, find Chad E. Foster. I'm on LinkedIn and We've, we've done a little bit on TikTok, not, not a whole bunch yet, but um, if they go to my website, chadefoster.com, then they'll find all that information there. Okay. Well, thank you again, Chad. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. I feel it. And thanks to all of our Strong Mind, Strong Body listeners. We'll see you next week. Wow.